Well, good morning again. Uh, for those of you who just came in late or new here, just want to say a warm welcome to you again. Um, I have the privilege of leading this church uh, together with my wife, Joni, and it's a, it's a real joy to have you with us this morning. Before I launch into our new series uh, on the cross today, I just want to uh, share a couple of, of thoughts. It's interesting, um, but for those of you who were here, at the beginning of this year, I, I shared what I thought was a really uninspiring message. And um, it, it was kind of the opposite to what I'd planned for months. I kind of felt like I was hijacked uh, to say something that was the exact opposite to what I really wanted to say. And the messages that I was hearing everywhere, that the, the year 2020 would be the year of great revival, of, uh, of great vision, of double portion, new year, new you, all those kind of things. And, and the verses I felt I needed to say, and I did so reluctantly, uh, were from James 4, verse 13 to 17. It says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money, while you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now, I couldn't think of a more relevant few verses for us today in our time and in our world. And I've spent this week going into schools in the city of Hull sharing this message, basically saying, uh, maybe not the most popular message, but life is brief, life is uncertain. Therefore, wisdom tells us if life is brief and life is uncertain, then build a life on urgent and important things. And Christians should know this more than anyone, is that we should build our lives on important, and urgent things. This is what a follower of Christ and this church does. This is our joy, our privilege, our call to invest in that which is important and urgent. Uh, I've already, as I said earlier, sent an email out to you from Joni and I with the current response to the situation, but let me just add a couple of things. When, when I look at this situation that's around us, uh, what you fear usually communicates what you love. If you can understand what your greatest fear is, it will reveal to you what you most love. And this season we are in as a world is revealing truly what people love. We currently have an epidemic of fear which exposes the love of people's hearts. Self-preservation is a symptom of that. Paul said to Timothy that we will see more of that in the last days, that people will be lovers of themselves. The church, Christians, are to love God and to love people, period. We are citizens of another kingdom, which is a kingdom of faith, not a kingdom of fear. Faith is our currency that we trade on, not fear. Paul said to Timothy, we have been given, not been given a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. This is what we have within us. And what our communities need most right now are people of sacrificial, other-centered love, people of power, and people certainly of sound mind. And I want to encourage you as the church to be one of those people. 
C.S. Lewis's words written 72 years ago ring with great relevance for us. Just replace atomic bomb with coronavirus. He said this, in one way we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age? I'm tempted to reply, why? As you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year. Or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land. Or indeed, as you're already living in an age of cancer or syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. Only C.S. Lewis could say it like this. That's why I'm quoting him. <laughs> Write him a letter. <laughs> and quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors' anaesthetics, but we have that still. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all but a certainty. This is the first point to be made and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we're all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint, and a game of darts. <laughs> I'm getting a dartboard installed in the office <laughs> this week. Not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies, but they need not dominate our minds. So let me urge you to seize the day, twofold. We have for a long time communicated from this very lectern that consumerism and busyness are idols in our time. Now when things are stripped away, uh, I don't know about you, but I, I did not know what to do with myself yesterday without looking at the sport. I mean, it's like the idol has fallen. I was weeping in the corner. <laughs> it's my daughter's birthday as well. I'm like, well, I need to put Sky Sports on. <laughs> but I love, and I was reminded yesterday in prayer about a phrase I remember reading many, many years ago. And it was uh, by a pastor, uh, author, theologian in the States called John Piper, and he talks about wartime simplicity. I think it's time for wartime simplicity to read to pray, enjoy a meal, spend time with loved ones, to give generously. And to secondly, to share the gospel with those who don't know Christ. We're gonna be planning this week some things, what we can do in our neighborhood to connect with people. But may I suggest a couple of things, be generous, write a note to your neighbors. I know of a couple in our church only yesterday made soap and distributed it to their street with a note. Bring food to church. And let me say, and to, I know some of you have even got relatives, friends that are struggling. Um, if you need anything, then let us know as a church. And we will do our best to help. So we as a church, we are going to concentrate on the urgent and important things. And that is helping the people of Fulham Beyond find home. Home in God and home 
with us as a community. So today I want to start a new series, and I think this is very relevant for us. And we've called it The Way Home. I'm going to do a series looking at the cross of Christ. And as we converge towards Easter, I want to talk about how the cross is the very thing that brings us home. It's the very thing that brings humanity back to God. And I have just one point that I want to say today, one point that my prayer is that you would go and that it would just just sink deep in your soul. And that is that the cross of Christ must come back to the place of first importance for us as the church. It must come as the centerpiece of first priority. It must be, again, upheld and elevated as at the very center of our faith. The cross is like a multifaceted diamond, and we're going to be exploring the many treasures and the angles um, over the next few weeks. But by way of introduction, I just want to today elevate the cross for us to behold again. Elevate the cross for us to behold again. Our world, and when I say our world, I include myself and and, and as all here, we need desperately to bring the cross back to front and center of our hearts and lives. Simon Ponsonby, who we're thrilled to have come and speak to us in October, said at a vineyard conference a couple of years ago, if we drop the cross, we lose the plot. He'd actually written a letter via the Christianity magazine to the UK church before that about what the church needs most in our time and in our day and it was to bring the cross back to its rightful place. He actually sent me a draft of the letter before he got it published and asked me, John, is this too strong? And I'm like, Simon, it's not strong enough. You see, the cross has been sidelined. Churches are quick to rely on money and buildings and great staff, but these have no power in and of themselves. In fact, a couple of my friends who are atheists came to our church last year and they both independently said to me, John, where is your cross? I found that quite interesting. They wanted to know where the cross was over and above that we served a pint of beer. These are vehicles for the communication of the message that is God's power, which is the cross of Christ. We do not need a new thing. One of my favorite films is uh, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if you remember it, but at the beginning, Indiana replaces some, uh, the, the treasure with an equal weight bag of sand in order not to trigger the booby traps. And as you know, it doesn't work. And that massive stone comes running after them and, and the whole structure comes down on them. And sadly, many... Christians replace the centrality of the cross and the treasure of the cross with other things. Charismatics make Pentecost central. Liberals make social justice central. Fundamentalists make rules and regulations, do's and don'ts central where the cross screams done. All these things are good things. Some of them are precious things and biblical things, but the centerpiece is the cross. If we replace the treasure of the cross with other things as primary, it'll be like a bag of sand and the whole structure will fall down upon us. Our friends at the local church down the road, St. John's, were telling me last week that a couple of weeks ago they baptized 15 Iranians 
And they'd actually been teaching that morning on the woes described in Luke 6. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are well fed now. Woe to you who laugh now. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. And these 15 people who had come to Christ, all they'd ever known were, was poverty, lack, hunger, rejection from family. But they were so happy. Because all they have now is Christ. The leaders told me that they were all sobbing from the front. They couldn't speak. It was such a holy moment. You see, the cross of Christ had turned their lives upside down and that was all they had to live for. It wasn't like come to Christ and everything will get fixed. You have good health, you have money in the bank, your family will love you, none of that. But they have the cross. John Wimber, the founder of the vineyard, once said, don't mess with the gospel. It was great then and it's great now. We must return to God's story of stories as the epicenter of our identity. Tom Wright calls it the irreducible minimum without which this is not the gospel. We are not saved and without believing, living and sharing this, we are actually not a church. The mystery and the marvel of the cross of Christ is driven by God's furious, extravagant love for us, unwilling to conceive eternity without us at home with him. The Scots Prince of Preachers, James Stewart, called these the primal verities of our faith. I don't know about you, I long to see renewal in the church, I long to see a revival in this nation of people coming to faith. But for this to happen, we must repent of bending to the culture, of sidelining our gospel. We must urgently pray to be filled with the Spirit of God, for only when we're endowed with power from on high we will be what God has called us to be and do what he has called us to do. But the spirit always falls on those who cling to the cross. The spirit flows from the cross and leads us to the cross. If we want spiritual renewal, if we want the church to break out in blossom rather than being a trivial memory, we need to put back the cross. See, the Corinthian church claimed to be spiritual they claimed to be mature. They said they were moving on to loftier things. And Paul was at pains to communicate to them that, look, you have drifted away from the main thing, which is the cross. They thought they'd moved on, they'd matured, but they'd actually gone backwards. They prided themselves on being spiritual. In that letter, it mentions that word 12 times, spiritual, in knowledge, in power, in wisdom, they thought they'd left Paul behind. He was weak, he was foolish. Thank you, but we're done, we're moving on. And that's why Paul had to address things on spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues and say, look, don't treat these things as spiritual trophies. If you don't have love at the center of all these things, then it's meaningless. It's a pains to say that everything, foundation, the center must be on the cross, they'd become victims, if you like, of spiritual amnesia. And we too can be like this, we can forget about the cross. I've got time just to read the whole passage, but Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, he goes on and on about how we're to elevate the power of the cross. 
It says in chapter two, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So that's Paul. I, I, I resolve to know nothing except him and him crucified. And you have in Paul's all his letters and teachings, you have like in 4K, HD, IMAX, surround sound, that the cross is central and paramount to our faith. Charles Simeon served as a minister for 54 years in 1782 in a church in Cambridge. And uh, when Joni and I took on the church in January, I, I consoled myself with reflecting on Charles Simeon because for much of the 54 years he was the pastor he was despised by his community and the church his appointment at 23 was very unpopular they boycotted the church they even locked the pews so that people couldn't get in so Charles put chairs out in and around the pews but they threw the chairs out so that people would have to stand but he never wavered in proclaiming the gospel and by his death, many hundreds had been converted and his grateful congregation placed an epitaph in the church to him. And underneath it said, Charles Simeon, he determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. I want to say to you this morning, church, don't look for shortcuts to spiritual power. For power lies in the foolishness of the cross and the weakness of our testimony. That is where the true power lies. If we truly want to evangelize, share the gospel and be the gospel in action, then actually the church, you and I, need to be re-evangelized ourselves. We actually need to tell ourselves the gospel every single day. We need to fall in love again with Christ and his cross. It is the original seed to which all the rest springs up. Galatians chapter six, verse 14, it says this, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There are many things, aren't there, to boast in. And Paul says, he boasts in the cross. He glories in the cross. He says there's nothing more important, nothing more central, nothing that is the cause more, that brings more excitement, more comfort, more celebration, more boasting than the cross of Christ. And we see it through the Gospels. It is the central thing in the Gospels. In fact, if you break the Gospels down, you realize that a lot of the focus is on that final week before Christ was died. Much of actually Jesus' life is missing from the Gospels. But the main thing is all about pointing to the cross. I just want to talk about the cross itself because I think over the last 2,000 years, and I think as every generation goes by, I think we've become numb and desensitized to the horror of the cross. You see, the cross as a, a faith symbol for us is actually quite shocking. It's rather surprising when you consider the horror with which crucifixion was seen as in the ancient world. 
It's the cruelest of all methods, probably in that it delayed death until maximum torture had been inflicted. It was invented by the barbarians and adopted by the Romans, reserved for criminals, convicted of such things as murder. Roman citizens were exempt unless there were extreme cases of treason. Cicero, which, who was one of Rome's great statesmen, in one of his uh, speeches, condemned it as a cruel and disgusting punishment and declared to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. And I want to take a few moments to re-enter that story of the cross. We see in the build-up to Christ's death, Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, is he, he sweats drops of blood because he knows what is to come. Such was the anguish and the stress of it. He gets arrested by the man, ironically, who got healed by Jesus. Jesus heals this guy and he arrests him. He endures six trials, three of which were illegal according to Jewish law. They pulled the beard out of his face. They spat on him. They mocked him. They blindfolded him and slapped him. They flogged him. They stripped him naked. They pushed a crown of thorns upon his head. They gave him a staff and a robe and mocked him as the king of the Jews to bring utter shame and ridicule. They took the staff and they beat him with it. The crowds a few days earlier shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, now shout, crucify him, crucify him. They put nails through his wrists and his ankles. The Romans made crucifixion a grotesque art form and perfected it so the world would look upon them and fear them. Never betray us because this is what can happen. They beat him. They hung him and they did in a way that he would die over a period of time. Your lungs would be filled with blood until you drowned in your own fluids. The cross is where we get the word excruciating from, that word, excruciating. See, the passion of Christ is unique. As horrific as Jesus' death was, and it has a, it has a unique and transcendent value. If you put all together the pain the injustice and the suffering by all the people through the centuries, it would probably be obviously greater than the pain that Jesus took on himself. But from a moral point of view, all the suffering and the sorrows together of all the people in history and the future will never equal the passion of Jesus' soul. Isaiah states that he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows. So we look to the cross of Christ and we look at the suffering and the pain and we see that and it makes us weep. But actually the cross of Christ was so much more than that. So much more than that. It says in Galatians 3 that Jesus was cursed in our place. That word is synonymous with emptiness, solitude, abandonment, and separation from God and excluded by all people. In that moment, Jesus experienced a sort of excommunication by God and by humanity. 
On the cross, Jesus experienced the greatest consequence of sin, which is the loss of God. He became the godless one. He became the atheist, if you like, on the cross. Now, what blows my mind and affects my worship of God and living for him with utter, utter abandonment and devotion is Jesus is at the top of the scale of greatness, for he was perfect. This happened, and he was perfect. He was the lamb without blemish. He'd committed no sin. So he didn't just absorb the punishment for sin, but the dreadful imputation of sin. He took our sin on himself without ever having committed any sin. So it wasn't just any old suffering that our Savior experienced. It was an unjust suffering. The innocent suffered for our sake and in our place. Therefore, the suffering is purer and the voice is more eloquent. This is what I long for us to see with the cross. You see, our meditation on the cross can become purely as we sing those songs about the cross we did today, it becomes almost objective and historical reconstruction of the event. But if Christ died for me and for my sins, that means that I killed Jesus of Nazareth. And it's only when we meditate daily on the offense of the cross that we truly understand the power and the freedom of the cross. Paul declared it on Pentecost. He said, you killed, he looked to the 3,000 people, he said, you killed Jesus of Nazareth. So guys, it has to be personal for us. And only then can we truly understand worship and forgiveness and freedom and how we truly relate to people. If we want to eulogize over our enemies and love our enemies and those who persecute us, we have to have a revelation of the love of the cross of Christ it's not out there somewhere, but it's here deep in my soul. I pray that we have the kind of encounter that Peter had before this all happened when he denied Christ. And he says this, that Jesus turned and looked at Peter and Peter went out and wept bitterly. So Peter denied Christ three times. Christ looked at him and that look changed him forever. I want you to think of two prisoners in a concentration camp. Imagine you're one of them and you've tried to escape knowing that the punishment would be death. A companion is blamed in your presence but he doesn't inform on you and he is tortured in your presence and then he's taken to the place of execution and he turns and briefly looks at you with no shadow of reproach. Now when you manage to get home, could you ever be the same person ever again? Could you ever forget that look? What do we weep at if we do not weep at this? What blows my mind even further is this was God's idea. This isn't God's plan B or plan C. This was the Trinity's idea before creation. Before you were born, Christ, for the foundation of this world, Christ knew what he was gonna do and he saw my face and your face as the nails were driven into his wrists and his ankles and he said, I'm doing this for you in your place. I'm receiving the punishment, the separation from the wrath of God. I'm doing all of this. I am thirsting so you will never have to thirst again. 
that you will have a relationship, a covenant relationship with God, and it will be forever. Forgiveness, the power of sin broken over your life. Friends, this is the hope that we must hold on to, particularly in our time. People are saying, where, where do we turn to? Where's the hope? The su- supermarket shelves are empty. And I want to scream through the social media, our hope is in Christ and the cross. The world offers us false hope all the time. If you go through cancer or your mum has dementia, you need real hope. Charles Revson, the founder of Revlon, the makeup company, says, we do not offer makeup, we offer hope. I said that was a bit of light relief to the uh, <laughs> intensity of my talk. <laughs> this is a living hope. It's an amazing gospel even the angels long to look into and understand. It's a certain hope. It's not like, I hope I get that grade or I hope I get that job. I hope I get that man or woman. This is a certain hope. I was in the bank last week sharing my faith with one of the staff. I was saying to him, look, I'm not here. I cannot place my hope in, in Santander. <laughs> I'm going to be up front. You're offering me a lot of stuff. You want me to change my accounts. I, cannot put, I can't put it in politics. You know, no one's talking about Brexit anymore, are they? That's what fear does. You can't place it in your health. And I told the lady, I said, let me tell you, can't place it in your body, you can't place it in your relationships, you can't place it in this bank, you can't place it in this job. You can only place it in Christ. We have a tremendous opportunity in this time to tell people that people will never be more open to hear men and women of the church full of joy, full of peace. Not an anxious presence and an anxious world to tell them of the hope you can have in Christ. Let us boast in the cross. I boast in the cross. My identity is connected to the cross. My life is rooted in the cross. That's why the world with all its charm just doesn't hook me anymore. That's why I'm not consumed by my job title, by my salary, by what people may say in a performance review. I am captured, I am charmed, I am enraptured by the cross because at the cross, I see there the only person in the world who has ever loved me enough to die for me. No one's ever died for me. My boss didn't die for me, my job won't die for me, my kids won't, even my spouse haven't died for me. And even if someone did die for me, no one's ever died for me knowing what Jesus knows about me. He knows my darkest secrets. He knows my struggles. He knows what I think, what I feel, my ambitions, my pride. No one has ever treated Jesus like I have treated Jesus. I've never treated anyone as shabbily as I treat Jesus, and yet no one else has absolutely forgiven me the way Jesus has forgiven me. No one 
gives me the power to face death like Christ does. No one gives me the ability to smile in the face of death other than Christ, crucified and risen. No one else, nothing else can make me right with God. Nothing can relieve the guilt of my conscience. No one has the capacity to cleanse me from what I've done and what I've left undone other than Jesus. So you want power in your life. Make the cross central. Allow yourself to be offended by its claims and then meditate on the cross, think on the cross, and do what the hymn writer said, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt and all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood.'"